All right. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Let's do this. Let's put up that. How about that? Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. It is, uh, let's see. Let me turn it up a little bit more. Check, check. A little more. There we go. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 102 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Uh, appreciate you guys watching. First things first, if you are watching on YouTube, thumbs up on this bad boy. Hit subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast platform, whatever it may be, uh, share it with a friend, recommend it, but of course also give us, or give me anyway, a nice review or something. Just make it so that you help me on the algorithm on whatever service you're listening to this on. Okay, today we'll get to UFC 271 stuff. Uh, peruse the questions very quickly. Saw some UFC 271 stuff. Saw some Izzy stuff in general. We can get to all that, plus whatever is on your mind. So in addition to the thumbs up and the subscription... If you want to get a question specifically answered, you can leave uh, a super chat question, but you are certainly under zero obligation to do that, and any and all of them are appreciated. By the way, um, my uh, the business partner, basically, or my this guy who's helping me, if you listen to my original radio show back, back, back in the day on WJFK 106.7 The Fan, he was my producer for that. His name is Othello. We've been, um, we've probably looked at, I don't know, not quite a dozen properties, but a bunch, actually about a dozen properties if you count what he's looked at and what I've looked at in terms of places to set up. I think we found a place. I've not signed anything yet. I got a couple more places to look, but we found a good one that if we end up going there, it will be cozy, not a huge room, but um, a very good one. Very, very excited about what, what's possible there. So, uh, okay, without further ado, that's how this show works. I put up a thread or a post on the community section of youtube.com slash Luke Thomas every Wednesday. People fill it up, and then we get questions. So without further ado, let's get to those questions. All right, and we're back. Let me turn this subscription thing off. There we go. Let's pull up your questions. Okay, let's do this. Jesus, first question is this one. Um, Jesus. Well, you know what? I, I guess I will answer that. Okay, what was your perception of war and its usefulness before the Marines, and how did your service time change that perception. Um, I would not say that my perception of war and its usefulness was entirely a function of any kind of military experience. You got to remember, you, I, I was in college when I was in the military at the exact same time because I did, I did reservist, and as a consequence, um, you know those two th experiences are highly aligned. There were there was only one year separate where I was out of college, still in the Marine Corps. Uh, and then just sort of living as an adult, but it didn't last for about a year. So most of my time was overlapped. So I would actually, put, I mean, obviously each experience informed your judgment in different ways, but I would say, firstly, I went into college with the idea that um, dropping the, I mean, I, you know, I was 18, I didn't know anything about the world. So at the time, I thought there was probably a very good justification for dropping the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a way of subduing the Japanese into uh, winning World War II, and it turned out through college and, th and and getting a little bit more education about the world that that was probably not a case you could make a strong evidentiary uh, effort behind. So partly the wheels were in motion when you're like, well, okay, let's dial that back. Well, what else? 
Um, the thing that really informed my judgment about its usefulness was that it was really my, uh, candidly, it was my father uh, more than anything else. I, I was born in late 79, almost 80. Um, right, so I guess I like barely qualify as millennial or something, but certainly Vietnam had been over and there had been a period of however many years, uh, we're talking about here where we're on one, two or three, you know, 10 or more where, you know, Vietnam is over and there's some reflections about that. And then, you know, growing up in the nineties, Vietnam, there was people, people used to make jokes about Vietnam vets having flashbacks. If you like clap too loud or there was a sudden noise and people would be like, Oh, I'm having Vietnam flashbacks and everyone was like haha it's super funny and now you're like wow that's really fucked up but we all did it so the point i'm trying to make is i um i went in with an attitude of war being not as costly as we might imagine for either side certainly for your own side um in some cases even the humane response and also i went in with which i realize is insane to say but uh also with a spirit of like this is the quickest way to get what we want um out of problem solving. I also grew up in the with the first Iraq war, which was, you know, uh, an American orgy of, and European as well, dominance of military might. My unit fought in the Iraq war. They had stories about how they were just, con you remember the, the Iraqis learned artillery from the Russians, I believe. I think their tactics and a lot of their weapons came from them. The Russians are the inventors of artillery, so... Um, or a mo I should say Russian modern artillery tactics. Okay, the most modern Russian, the, the most modern artillery tactics, you know, we're talking 2021, I don't think it came from the Russians. In the era in which I was in the military, it was strongly conveyed to me that their tactics that they used were a function of Russian best practices that they had borrowed. In any case... All of these things kind of built, and then there was 9-11, and then you felt like this righteous cause of uh, retribution. Again, I'm not saying that that was the right attitude. That's just what you have. Uh, the thing that really got me, the thing that really got me, my mom was at, and my mom, I guess, played a role here too, but uh, my mom was like really right-wing, like very, very right-wing. She loved Rush Limbaugh and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, she was an immigrant, but she she was um, she was super pro, like Reagan and Bush and the whole nine yards. And except on like one issue and a major one, she was not very uh, pro-Israeli. You could imagine being Lebanese that they're not necessarily going to have the nicest things to say about the Israeli government or their military tactics. I'm not here to get into a big debate about it, but you would imagine if you surveyed the average Lebanese person, you know, they're not going to have very nice things to say about um, their military practices. And I remember thinking uh, in the run-up to the war, and my dad also telling me, my dad worked in Iraq when he was in the Foreign Service. And uh, he lived in Baghdad. He remembered, um, you know, one time coming back to his apartment building and telling me that there was a, uh, an Iranian missile that had been lodged and it didn't go, the ordinance didn't explode. And, you know, he had to leave his, his building and everything. It was a whole fucked up thing. But... Um, I remember him telling me that, like, very clearly, very clearly, my dad telling me that, like, Saddam almost certainly does not have weapons of mass destruction, and he uses that threat of force to keep his people subdued. I remember my dad having this conversation with me explicitly because it was so against what everything was being reported in the media. And I remember my mom thinking, like, the exact, my mom and my dad never got along in my experience. And I remember my mom saying the exact same thing. And 
saying though that oh there was because Bush was in power and my mom was pro Bush she was like there's no way he'll he'll do that there's no way he'll do that and I, she died uh, prior to the invasion I wonder what that would have done if she had seen it uh, because she was like there's no way they'll do that there's no way they'll invade Iraq everybody in that region knows they don't have it it's all a big bluff but it's a bluff that works for Saddam because blah 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 I never forget that. I'll never forget those conversations. And of course the war happened and then it was a complete fucking calamity of almost indescribable proportion. And um, I remember realizing not only would there be that the media would not serve as a watchdog uh, under certain circumstances. You got to remember this is post 9-11 where like there's like either you're, you know, remember George Bush, you're either with us or you're against us. That's what it was all about. Um, there was this real pro-America fervor, which, okay, fine, but it metastasized into this, you know, we, we need to fucking flex on someone. Let's figure out a way to do it. And if you don't support it, it's because you love the people we're flexing on. It was this horrible time. Anyway, the whole thing kind of added up to um, war seems like it is an inevitability. And in certain cases, it might be a necessity. But you can imagine, and at that point I had lived through the reality that uh, war will often exist, including in calamitous ways, utterly irrelevant to any kind of uh, strategic national interest, military necessity uh, basis. Other people who profess to have knowledge of this world whatever world they may end up being, um, will not have it, and yet they will be enormously influential. And, you know, if you live in a climate of um, having your country just have been attacked or terrorized or whatever word you would like to describe to call 9-11, you are going to tap into a certain sentiment that is going to make, you know, those kinds of realities so much more believable than you would have ever imagined. For my mom to be as pro GOP as she was and to think that invading was impossible and yet it happened you know not long after she perished uh I still wonder what that would have done I still wonder what that would have done but the point I'm trying to make is individually you might find a case where its usefulness is outweighs its negative costs but you will find almost far more instances of being like, how the fuck are you going to do this under these flimsy conditions? And it will just happen. And so for those reasons, being skeptical as a natural posture of any kind of war footing is probably a good idea. Uh, hey, Luke, how did you track your calories and macros while you were in Colombia? Also, how's training going? Training is going poorly because it is so inconsistent. Um, did train today, which was great, but uh, has not been, at, I want to be very clear, has not been at all on par. And to answer your question, I did not track my macros in Colombia whatsoever, and I lost five pounds there. Um, I'm not, I don't, I want to be clear about this. I do not speak for the service that I use is Carbon. It's a it's a Lane Norton product. It is absolutely first rate. I love everything about it. But I want to be clear. You know, I don't speak on behalf of Lane. I don't speak on behalf of Carbon. And frankly, I don't speak on behalf of any kind of uh, flexible dieting program. I'm not qualified to do that. Yes, I've lost 40 pounds to this point, which is great. But that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make me an expert. It just makes me somebody who is on the right path listening to experts. 
What I will tell you is I don't want to live my whole life tracking macros every single day on my phone, on my app. In a perfect world, I wouldn't really do that. But for right now, I needed some guideposts about um, what are best practices around eating? How do I achieve satiety goals? Right? How do I satiate myself if I'm eating um, you know, uh, things I used to eat less but you know, are more wholesome now? What, what are the best ways to arrange this kind of food? How do I like my meals to progress in terms of the biggest ones versus the smallest ones? What works for me? What time works for me? And having some kind of central coordinating power to assist me in that has been hugely invaluable. But you know, as a natural thing, I don't want to live on the phone all the time. So part of what I'm doing is not just looking at the phone and what the calories are and then making judgment calls about how to balance the budget, so to speak. It's about like, wait a second, what foods are just better for me and more filling and I can eat more of, right? You can eat a lot more apples to get the same amount of calories that you would get from you know a bag of M&Ms or something. It's significantly more food you can consume in that way. Um, and so you just realize there are much easier ways to solve your satiety issues. Sorry, there's a my lamp is over here. Um, and as a consequence, uh, knowing what I can eat and getting also just a better sense of proportion, how much can I eat? Granted, I was eyeballing it, but um, it worked. It, it worked really well. I wouldn't want to do that for too long until I got really, really good at it. I don't think I'm there yet, but... Uh, the point I'm trying to make is the app has been, and it's, and I'm tracking today, like I'm tracking now, like this, I'm back on tracking. I have one more point about this. The app's first function and value to me was just putting me on a path that was not restricted, but uh, disciplined and clear. But that path then began to impart larger wisdom about food consumption that I could take, and I could take some of the training wheels that the app can provide for people that, again, I needed and will need time to time. Uh, it allowed me a little bit freer function and, you know, it gives me a bit of a mental break from having to log everything all the time, although now I'm back on it. The last thing I'll say about this, and it arguably is the most important, there's a guy named Dr. Mike Isratel. If you've watched Morning Combat before, I have recommended his stuff. He works for a company called Renaissance Periodization. These are, these are basically scientific meatheads. These are guys who, in many cases, are on steroids and are lifting but have advanced degrees, have really looked into the literature about what works, what doesn't why they stay up to date about it they have very clear concise approaches it's just good science and good best practices all put into work it, i cannot i cannot recommend their stuff more highly it is just i can only imagine what i would have been able to do if i had that in my 20s but here we are i got it in my 40s i'm grateful for that he made a point that really kind of stuck with me if you look at those people on the biggest loser now granted they're starting with like extraordinary weights where they're trying to lose you know 100 200 or more sometimes um, they, they just went straight all the way through. They had the, however much they lost on the show, then they went home and they lost a bunch more and then they had the grand reveal at the finale or whatever, but they never took breaks. Turns out that what the literature shows is that once you lose about 10% of your starting weight, take a break, take a break for a month, two, I think it's three, again, consult Dr. Mike Isratel on this, but my recollection is two months or so after you've lost 10%, stay there. Turns out that I had lost about 10% uh, of where I, well, a little bit more actually, I'd gone a little bit further um, to where I was. And so I decided that I was just gonna hold off there on that month. So I wasn't even in calorie deficit mode. I was merely in main maintenance. I was just in maintenance. And so guiding myself on maintenance calories versus deficit calories for a short window in a country where the food's gonna be really different than what's in the app anyway, but minding some of those lessons, 
it was a fucking breeze. It was a fucking breeze, man. I'm not saying weight loss is a breeze. It's not a breeze because every day you have to make good decisions when you're in that deficit period. But once you learn how to make them and you can and you've actualized that commitment, you know, for a little bit of time, the, the you just it takes over itself. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. The downside, though, is my training through the holidays and travel and everything just took a major hit. All right. Is there going to be an MMA question here at some point? Um, no questions. Wanted to thank you for everything you do. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Um, I came to photojournalism later in life, 28. Self-taught. Didn't go to journalism school. Grinded my way up from $25 freelance assignments to now working with the second largest newspaper in Iowa as a staff photographer. That's great. Uh... The chat at times has helped uh, make it feel like it was made for underdogs. And honestly, that's pretty fucking cool. I hope it has. If there's anything else I could take away from this, I hope it has, man. Um, your live chats made me feel like I wasn't alone, especially during isolation of COVID. I'm glad, and I guarantee that this is why you have such a loyal fan base. Well, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what the situation might be, but I certainly appreciate um, this note, and I appreciate your support. And congratulations, man. Keep, keep, keep swinging the axe. We always talk about it. All right, here we go. It seems like 170 is always filled with wrestlers and 185 is always filled with strikers. Do certain divisions lend themselves to certain fighting styles? I recognize that less mass means more mobility, but my question goes beyond mass-based probabilities. It's a phenomenal question because you look at Anderson Silva, who was sort of the striking-based guy who really defined what middleweight greatness even means, and then the guy who was basically the closest to that since then, more or less, is Israel Adesanya, right? No one's gotten closer than him. You did have Luke Rockhold, who was more like kickboxer, grappler, but he kind of fell on hard times. You did have Chris Weidman, who was more wrestleboxer, but he could grapple as well, obviously. And that's a little bit different, but he wasn't quite lasting. These more lasting powers have been these rangier, kickboxer, striker types. Um, that's kind of interesting, and it's true. At 170, you had Pat Militich did have wrestling early but he wasn't like a wrestler and neither was Carlos Newton in that sense although Carlos Newton obviously could wrestle a little bit as well like both of them had it but the first real like dominant dominant guy in that weight class like the one who really set the tone for what it meant to be a, a great welterweight was Matt Hughes um, and then Matt Hughes gave way to GSP and then GSP gave way to uh, well, let's see Hendricks and then Lawler is a can wrestle but wouldn't call a wrestle type but then you go back to Woodley uh, and then Woodley gave it to Usman, and so you had those wrestler, wrestler, boxer types. Now it's not fair because here's Kamar Usman knocking out, um, knocking out um, Jorge Masvidal. But uh, and you know GSP could do it all too. But I get your point. Like that was you know it wasn't just it, it, you know when when who who was Matt Hughes's number one rival it was Frank Trigg or well, I guess you could say it was Dennis Hallman depending on your perspective but certainly in the UFC before the emergence of GSP Hughes versus Trigg one and Hughes versus Trigg two these were big fights dude I remember them they were big fights um so another wrestler right Frank Trigg from the Rico Ciparelli uh, Ciparelli uh, raw team and then he you know so he was a wrestler. And then if you look at the two kind of guys who were GSP's main rivals, again, after Hughes had sort of moved on, I guess you could say Penn for a while. But in terms of like true welterweights, it was Kostek and Fitch. Two other wrestlers, right? Um, these This feels a little anecdotal to say. So 
I don't have a good answer for you other than um, I don't know. I fucking don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a good answer for you. I really don't. I really don't. I wonder about again certain body types working better in certain weight classes and that having something of a self-sorting effect, right? Um, but and I also I don't know if the larger data supports this because, for example, if you look at Bellator's welterweight division, the two top guys. Well, you got Amosov now, and he can wrestle, but MVP is going to fight him. You would never call him a wrestler. And Douglas Lima is well-rounded, but you would argue that striking is probably his predominant method of, uh, or his, his biggest strength. So it wouldn't really hold up there. Granted, Bellator is not equivalent to the UFC, uh, but you know it does change the picture a little bit. So without more data and without a clearer sense of things, I don't know. But it is interesting that you bring it up the way you do. It's some, certainly something that I would like if someone else could come up with a better answer. Um, would love for Dan Hardy to go on MK and vice versa. Dan Hardy's podcast would be great. Yeah, Dan's the man. I've been, it's funny, man. Sometimes people like, um, they'll ask me like, you know, where, how, how did you learn about what you know about the fight game? Again, which Dan knows a lot more, but what I mean to say is to the extent that I know anything, partly from a training environment, partly from self-study, but here's the other part about my job that folks never take into account. I've been doing this for about 15 years or so, give or take, um, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective and, and my level of success. But that's the amount of time I've basically put into this, okay? Uh, which includes time where I wasn't full-time, but nevertheless, still doing interviews and such. And I've always been lucky enough, like imagine if you were a fan and you had a question about something you saw in a fight, you could just text a coach. I, can, I can't do that with every coach, but there's definitely like a handful of coaches I can just do that with. I can just text and be like, hey, man, I saw your guy did blah, 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 blah. What, can you walk me through that? But even in formal interviews, I've interviewed Dan. I mean, and this is why it comes back to this. I've interviewed Dan and just talked to Dan. Um, you know, really, for if you count it all up, for hours and hours at a time. He helped me a lot with my McGregor Mayweather preview. He did a great job with that, too. So part of the reason why I feel like I know at least a little bit of something is for 15 years, I've had access to some of the greatest minds in MMA, and I've got to I got to listen to them impart wisdom to me, and I've taken a piece from everything, and it, it really is uh, it's just I'm it's an incredibly you know it's a very I feel very fortunate I feel very fortunate that I have that access to not not to everyone uh, uh, for some reason Dwayne Ludwig I guess doesn't like me I don't know what I did I I've texted him and he didn't answer and then I noticed he blocked me on social media. So I must have said something that really um, uh, enraged him or whatever. I don't know what it is, but certainly I have nothing against Dan, Dan Ludwig, um, um, Dwayne Ludwig. And I, w I will say, you know, his YouTube channel, uh, I, I haven't watched it in a while, but he, it's full. I think he's got, I've never seen them, but I think he's got some BJJ Fanatic stuff. The point being is, for the most part, you can go and access stuff online. You can hear coaches talk to other interviewers. But in my particular case, and in the case of Dan Hardy, I've been able to talk to Dan a bunch. And it has, it's just been a joy. It's just been a joy. Would you ever have a live chat with either John Nash to really get into the fighter pay weeds or a notable coach to get into the weeds of what that job entails and requires of them? Who would be interested in having John Nash on the live chat? So in other words, next live chat, it's me and John Nash, right? You guys can leave questions. I'll play moderator. I'll pick and throw them to him. But you guys, you know, you you, you list the questions. Everyone thumbs up what they like. And, and I like I normally do. I'll try to be as... Um, adhere to it as, as reasonably possible. If you guys want to do that and he's down for it, I will do that either you know next week or whenever it can be arranged um, uh, sooner rather than later. I, I'd be happy to do that. Just let me know. 
What would it take for present-day Luke to get into a street fight? And what did it take for 25-year-old Luke to get into a street fight? Um, even then, I wasn't really looking for trouble because I'm not interested in going to jail um, for some other idiot's anger aggression issues. But certainly, it came a lot easier. Uh, you know, I don't know. It would take consistent shit-talking. I, I, you know, I'm not pulling that trigger at age 25 that easily relative to other 25-year-olds. But, you know... If there's drinking and there's enough shit talking, it ain't that much, I suppose, in the end. Today, it would take a lot. It would take a lot. Dude, I've got a career. I've got a family. I got this rotting but still present meat suit called my body that I need to take care of. I'm not going to jail for any of you fucking idiots. Uh, you know, it, obviously, if someone is attacking my family, I mean, yes, of course, then you're intervening. And there might be another scenario short of that line, but uh, it would take a lot. I, I'm not interested. In, and, and also, I don't go out at like 2 in the fucking morning to, you know, whatever your local area is. Here it would be, uh, you know, it would be like Adams Morgan or, or fucking 14th Street. I'm not going out. I have a kid. I got to be up at fucking 6 or 7. Like, I'm not getting, I'm not going to bed at two, 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning anymore. I'm not out where trouble usually finds you. So, for the most part, I'm, I, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Luke, what did being on a platform like JRE do to help bring a bigger spotlight to your work? I get asked this question a lot. Now, obviously, Joe's got the biggest podcast, I think, not just in the English language, but maybe on Earth. I don't know if anyone on Earth actually has a bigger audience in terms of podcasts. Um, so when I went on, and I think he put out a couple of videos from our discussion, I think I, I, think I got, so when did I go on his show? October 2020? I think that's right, right? When I went on that show, uh, Pandemic was still you know, raging like a bitch, but, uh, he had just switched to Spotify or he was, or he, he was really close to that. I, I think I was on the same week Glenn Greenwald was on and I saw his episode do this too. Initially, I thought our episode aired on YouTube and then it got taken off YouTube, but there was like two or three clips he put out and the clips all killed. Like they all did like one million or not all of them, but I think a bunch of them did one or two million plus. And I got emails and I got notes from, all, I got messages from several UFC fighters, some famous ones too, um, thanking me for speaking up about fighter pay. I've never, I'm never going to tell you who they were, but um, yeah, it, it like a lot of, and dude, like, like <laughs> it's kind of funny, like uh, old girlfriends or people I hadn't heard from in years and years and years tagging me on Facebook and shit. In that sense, it clearly had a wide impact in terms of who saw it. In terms of like materially changing my life in some kind of way where like all of a sudden, you know, I was like hitting the lottery and now my life is different the next day. No, it did not have that effect. Now, that's not some kind of indictment on Joe. It's probably more a, a, a reality about uh, people's feelings about me. But e even then, I don't really think that's what it is. I think what the reality is, is one, if to get like, I mean, this. I, you have seen people go on Joe's show and then their lives are different afterwards. I think partly, one, those people just might be more compelling to other people. The subject matter is certainly going to be bigger. Like Jordan Peterson, for example, I think his fortunes have changed since appearing on Joe Rogan's show. Not only Joe's show, but you know, I think Joe has obviously been the biggest signal booster for him, for good or for bad, depending on your perspective. But he was on multiple times, right? He was on a lot of different times and, and dealing with very... Uh, let's say uh, polarizing issues, depending on your, your, wherever you side, and he you know he took a firm stance on one of those sides. You know these kinds of things, including with repeat visits, 
And again, he was making noise. He was on Joe's show because he was making noise in Canada about some of his views. The point I'm trying to make is I've noticed that the ones who get like the repeat visits tend to get the biggest obvious audience signal boost. So I, I, I don't in any way wish to sound ungrateful. He didn't owe me that. That by itself was more than just fun. It was a great opportunity to get my ideas out there. I thought that he, you know, talked about fighter pay, which had to be uncomfortable as a UFC employee. I just I realized that. Um, he, he let me talk about it in a way that was unfettered. It, the episode wasn't censored in any way. He didn't cut anything out. Um, what more can you ask for? What more can you ask for? But if I'm just, you're answering the question, you know, did this materially change the way audiences perceive me? Did it meaningfully, did one single episode meaningfully, uh, you know, hit the lottery from an audience perspective overnight? No, I don't think there's any evidence for that. But um, that's probably not the right question to ask. You know, the right question is, what did you get out of it? And the answer is a lot. I got a lot out of it. Boy, there's not hardly any MMA questions. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. All right, here's one MMA question. Scoring question. Why can't we differentiate between an obvious round win but not a 10-8 from an I-could-go-either-way round? You do. We have 10 points to play with. Why can't we use them, and why is there such pushback from changing an obviously broken system? Well, you do. Like, Oh, wait a second. Why can't we differentiate between an obvious round win but not a 10-8? I see. Okay, so you can't use the 10-8. So, it's funny you bring this up. There have been various... Um, there have been various ways that people have tried to fix this. I think the one that got the most amount of push, although it ultimately died on the vine as well, but there was a real effort, for a time anyway to get a half-point system going. So to answer your question, in a half-point system, if it was real close, but maybe one guy just did a little bit more, you'd give him a 9.5. And in a case where someone was, you know, clearly the winner of that round, it wasn't 10-8, but that person is, no doubt about it, that's their round, um, and you give them a 10-9. And then if someone gets their ass kicked, you know, really bad, you can give them an 8-5 or 8. But the problem with that is it actually just introduces, I think, a level of complexity that doesn't really work. I mean, here's the thing that I don't really understand about um, how we do things. And this is why, you know, one keeps posting this bullshit nonsense on their and, – and, and, their, and their whatever his name is uh, – posting about how they have like 8 billion fucking views on their nonsense. It was just total horseshit. However, the pride system, which I don't mean the 10-minute first round and then two fives, but the judging the fight as a whole, again, this is my personal opinion. We don't have enough data for me to really say whether or not this is accurate. But my feeling is that the reason why I feel like I get better judging results out of that could be that the way in which I think Matt Hume selects which judges they use, uh, he might just have a good eye for what kind of a judge there is. Partly it could be that he has excellent quality control in ways that commissions may or may not. But I think the bigger issue to me is probably that the reason why a half-point system doesn't work is it solves the one problem you're bringing up. Hey, how do we differentiate between a round where someone squeaked by versus someone was clear but didn't kick their ass? Okay, the half-point 
system solves that problem. But the problem is it then creates a whole host of other problems. What is the difference between an eight and an eight and a half? Or even really a nine and an eight and a half? Um, adding these layers of complexity through the integers, not just from nine to 10, it turned out that when I think a couple of commissions ran a couple of tests and what they found was that like they didn't get better judging and it was honestly for the judges very confusing. If the judges are going to be confused, dude, what possible fucking hope could the audience have? I mean, part of what should happen here is, right, when you watch someone, for Europeans watching this, this may not make sense, but let's say that someone um, looked like they scored a touchdown, but for whatever reason, the knee might have been down, did they cross the plane, whatever the rule is. Let's see what that. Let's see what it looks like on replay. And what you'll get is, and by the way, there's complaints about this, which I don't understand. I mean, I understand, but I don't really agree with most of them. But pay attention to the analysis. The two commentators, whether it's Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, whoever it is, they'll throw to somebody, depending on what you're watching. If it's Fox, it's one guy. If it's ESPN, it's another. But they'll throw to somebody who is a rules expert. And so what the rules expert guy does is walk you through the rules, and sometimes those can be arcane or weird, but he walks you through the rules and then tells you how he would apply what he sees on the tape to those rules. There is at least some capacity to share that with you. But can you imagine commissions whose referees are never going to talk to the media, or basically never, whose referees and judges are never going to talk to the media? Like someone gets a 27.5 and then another person, you know, gets a 27. You're like, I lost by a half point where? And then you look at it and someone gave an 8.5 when the two of the judges gave a 9. Like how do you explain this to people as a rational way to do overall round-by-round round judging? It's just, just it, it adds a layer of complexity. And so the reason I circle back to one for all of how just total fucking Potemkin Village that whole organization is – their decision to use judging as a whole, I think, is a much better decision. Personally speaking, and again, without data to support this, this is an intuition, a hunch, I don't know this to be true. My feeling is if you can get people as judges who know what they're looking at, right? Like a big John McCarthy, for example, has served as a judge. I think a lot of fighters... Jesus Christ. I think a lot of fighters would... Um, now it's swinging like a bitch... Uh, would say that you know if Big John was judging, not not just refing, but even judging their fight, they would probably feel pretty good about. It. He's a qualified good judge. Um, uh, there's there's other ones, but the point being is, get someone that good and then tell them to judge the fight as a whole, rather than forced to do five fights in a five round contest, and you're judging each one and then adding other points up accumulatively. I just don't feel like if you're not assigning point value to individual moves. A takedown is not worth anything. A, a submission that doesn't work is not worth anything. A punch that landed that, you know, maybe it's worth something over the long haul, but if it doesn't knock them out, it, it didn't. there's no point scored for anything. Defense is also not scored. It is considered its own reward. What's the value of dodging a punch? The fact that you didn't get hit. That's the reward for defense. Um, if you're going to have these broad stroke ideas then you need broad stroke as a means of defining what a fight should be judged upon. Then you need a similarly similarly situated um, scoring criteria that honors 
both the knowledge of the judge and the expertise that they are supposed to have. Again, we're assuming that they've been vetted. And then a scoring criteria that corresponds to that in a more natural way. I've, I've never really, it, I just don't understand how you can be like, we're going to, like, in other judging systems, like if you watch women's gymnastics, yes, there is a degree of latitude about what the judge can give. But points are specifically awarded for particular maneuvers. That's why you look at the scores at the end. Um, there are deductions and there are rules about what kind of points can be deducted. Again, there's latitude there, but even in other judging systems, there is at least some kind of an effort to assign point values to particular maneuvers. I had an interview I did with um, Jeff Blatnick. If you're an OG, you know who Jeff Blatnick is. This guy was so important in the history of MMA. Important as an American wrestler. Important as uh, a commentator. Important as a guy who tried to get MMA regulated, who thought about MMA and what rules it needed. Prior to him perishing, he was just a great commentator too, by the way. You, you guys, you don't know what you missed if you missed Jeff Blatnick. Uh, one of the early guys from the wrestling community who got, at the time, NHB, but MMA, and then was able to articulate a vision about it and then could see in the future. And I asked him one time, just having a conversation, should we assign point values to techniques? And he said, in wrestling, it's extremely important that you do that. In MMA, it's extremely important that you not do that. And his argument, which to me seems quite right, was that MMA's beauty and its differentiation from other similar kinds of combat sports is just its variety, its complexity. If you begin to assigning point values, you will lose that perspective a little bit. I think that that has been true, and I think that that remains true. Whether it will always remain true, I guess we'll have to say. See, excuse me. But you get my idea here. I, I don't, I understand the particular kind of problem you're trying to solve. But if you're asking, how do we solve that problem by changing everything systemically, you have to make sure that, that any kind of systemic change doesn't carry with it the negative consequences that other systems have brought with it in trying to address that. It's an important question, but I, I, most of the answers that people have proffered have not worked, save for um, scoring a fight as a whole. Um, Jesus Christ, man, what is this question? Uh, how do I handle death? Um, fuck me. <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, email me. That's a better question for email. I need to think about this one. Um, let's get some good ones. All right. Any tips for people attending? Their first live UFC event. My fiance and I are flying down to Houston tomorrow. Fuck yeah. For the UFC 271 card. And I was wondering if you have any tips on avoiding drunken morons. No. Uh, and people with dubious social views. Nope. As well as any advice in general. Here's my advice to you. Um, listen, man. I'm not here to relitigate all the COVID shit. Y'all do what you want with your lives. Mask policies are falling everywhere. I'm not against it. I'm not here to relitigate it. Live your life. I'm just telling you, if you're a person who is mask conscious, I know some, it's funny, I, I'm still seeing tweets from people being like, my first flight in two, I think Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk was like, it's my first flight in two years. Damn, bitch, you missed a lot. I flew on inauguration day. There were more guns in that airport than people. 
I mean, you couldn't. I, there, there, I couldn't fucking believe the state of things. So, my point being is, if you're mass conscious, you just need to accept that everyone else ain't gonna be. Just you, just that's the rule. Don't go in there complaining. Don't go in there bitching. Oh, I'm going to wear a mask. It is what it is. If you want to be a part of that, that's just what it's going to be. I don't have a better answer for you. Live with it. That's the first thing I'd say. That aside, um, double check to see if the place you're going, the venue, I don't know about the venue, is cashless or not. That's a growing thing. That's not really UFC related, but that's important. The thing I always tell folks is the UFC, this has changed a little bit with COVID where they don't have open workouts anymore or whatever, or as much or whatever the case may be. But you should definitely go to the weigh-ins. They're free. They're well done. Um, I think I saw Mike uh, Chiesa, who who I love Mike Chiesa, but Mike, you got to stop eating chocolate hummus, dude. You're fucking killing me with that shit. I mean, Mike's great. I don't have a bad thing to say about Mike, except that motherfucker eats too much chocolate hummus. But uh, I think he and someone else were doing appearances in town. There's going to be all kinds of other appearances in town. Dude, the UFC is pretty good. I got to give them credit. They're pretty good. Again, even with all the COVID shit and the rules, um, they have a lot of free events for fans. They put fighters in places to kind of get the city sort of buzzing and moving again. I would argue it's up to your fiance about whether she wants to sit through it. Don't skip the prelims. Fucking go. I don't know where your tickets are, so that's a different thing. But honestly, what I would do is look up uh, the UFC. I think you can go to UFC.com slash schedule or there's other places to find it. But Or maybe it's like the UFC Reddit page. Um, look for who's ever doing appearances. Go to the weigh-ins. If they have open workouts, I don't think they will. If they do, go. Check out all the early prelims. Even on the day of the fight, there's usually autograph signings to certain places, meet and greets, all kinds of shit. Go to those. The fighters, for the most part, are pretty nice, man. Like, if they're there, they're usually been picked because they're, you know, they're cool dudes and they're and they're nice to people. Like, Mike is very affable for a chocolate hummus eater. Um, so, so just do all of that and... Um, yeah, dude, you're going to be around. <laughs> Listen, this would be true if I went to a Washington Wizards game, if I went to a fucking Commanders game. But uh, less true, actually, if I go to a Caps game. It's not totally true if I go to a Caps game. But listen, I'm going to go see Dying Fetus and Cannibal Corpse here. It's going to be true there, too. Every one of these places. You go out in public, it's going to have its fair share of drunken mouth breathers. You just need to accept that's the way it goes at you know certain events. MMA events tend to have their own fair share. UFC, Bellator, and everything regional in between. So, so just go with a good attitude. See who's doing meet and greets. Go to definitely don't skip the weigh-ins. And um, and by the way, they serve beer at the weigh-ins now. I mean, what is to not like? Just go have a couple tall boys and and then you know cheer for Rob and Izzy. Easy. That's an interesting question. Would you mind going through Anderson Silva's career fight matchup and see if the current Izzy would beat any of Anderson's previous opponents? Dude, he would beat a lot of Izzy's previous opponents. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, all right, so we're just talking UFC opponents, right? Because he fought some motherfuckers in pride, too. Dude, y'all don't even know. So he, by the time he went to UFC... He was 17-4 and four before he ever got to UFC. I talked about this on Twitter recently. 
people have no appreciation of the fact of what he did to Lightning Lee Murray. One of the most incredible fucking things I'd ever seen in my life. In 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 that motherfucker's hometown. And also, dude, y'all don't even remember Alex Stiebling. Alex Stiebling was this dude in Pride. This was Pride 21. Alex Stiebling got a couple of wins over some Brazilians. And this is back at the time when even the Brazilians were beefing with themselves. Like there was this uh, Brazilian, there was this big team called Brazilian Top Team. The Nogueras were a part of it. And then on the other side, you had Shoot the Box, which was like, you know, uh, Vanderlei and, uh, and uh, well, Anderson. And then uh, the, the Hua brothers and many, many others. It was, it was a long list. And they were always beefing. At the time... Alex Stiebling got a, got a couple dubs against some Brazilians and started calling himself the Brazilian Killer. Boy, Anderson didn't like that. Mm-mm. He went to fucking work on Alex Stiebling. That was unbelievable. Um, who did he beat? Oh, Alan Goez, who was one of the, the Brazilian pioneers in MMA. And, uh, well, oh, he beat uh, Valid Ishmael. So he beats Alan Goez and Valid Ishmael in back-to-back events. In Pride 18 and Pride 19. And starts calling himself the Brazilian killer. Motherfucker Anderson was like, not today. Mm-mm. He beat the shit out of Alex Stiebling. Didn't last very long. What's the official one? Right. 123 of the first round. <laughs> Fuck your life. Uh, but that was even before he even got to UFC. So we're just talking UFC. I, I do that, that Stiebling win and the Lightning Lee Murray wins. I was like, God damn, bro. He is. He is off the chain, but then Rio Chonin hit him with the flying heel hook. So, and then the Yushin Okami thing, Okami got up kicked and like basically uh, it would have been legal in Pride, I think. So uh, anyway, and then he, he oh then he beat Tony Fricklin with one, with one of those the Ong Bak things. A- anyway, I, 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 and no one's gonna respect the fact that he beat Curtis Stout. Curtis Stout was another beast, and he knocked Curtis Stout out. Okay, talking just UFC wins. Chris Levin could Izzy beat him? Yes. Rich Franklin. Uh, Rich Franklin actually would be a tough fight because he was really well-rounded, but I think in the end, Izzy gets it. Travis Luter is an interesting one because Travis Luter is a very good grappler. The backstory to that one was uh, he had missed weight, shaved his head to try and make it, still couldn't make it, was able to mount Silva, and I think even sat for an armbar briefly, and then couldn't finish it off. He actually tried a similar thing against Rich Franklin, but Rich hit the... Uh, as soon as... As soon as Luter hit the armbar and sat for it uh, rich franklin from if memory serves did what something called the hitchhiker escape essentially you point your thumb like a hitchhiker and then you roll your hips over the top of it to go to that same side and uh and then he escaped the armbar you actually come out in side control uh he did that and he got the win there S- certainly i think looter being a grappler of that pedigree remember the, i don't know if this was the fight but there was one fight where uh, mike goldberg called him the michael jordan of grappling and then joe rogan was like no no Mm-mm, no, I mean he's very good, but no. Uh, Nate Marquardt is an interesting one, but yes. Uh, Dan Henderson, yeah, I think he'd light Dan up. James Irvin, of course. Patrick Cote, of course. Talos Lightchies actually was a tough out, but I think he would have beaten him. Forrest Griffin is a two o fiver. That's an interesting one because you know Forrest is huge. Uh, Forrest is not just a two o fiver; he's a big two o fiver. Could he take down Izzy and then, like, not beat him up, but, like, do something like what Jan did because of the size advantage? That is – here's the thing. Can Izzy beat all of these guys? He can beat all those guys. The question is not could he beat all of them. The question is 
could he have done it all in succession in the way that Anderson did? Back to 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 back. Right? Can you show up every time and beat these guys when they have when you have the biggest target on your back imaginable? You know, how do you do that? Like Forrest Griffin knew what he was getting into with Anderson. Like they all knew that he was a fucking badass at that point. Tried his hand at it anyway. Um, which you gotta give him credit for. But uh you know, Chael Sonnen would have been an interesting one because of his relentless pursuit of the takedown. But I still think, like, most of the takedowns that Chael kind of got at the end there were fence-ish. I think Izzy's takedown defense against the fence is lights out in open space. It's where it's been a little bit more vulnerable. Stefan Bonner, Yushin Okami, like, yeah, he could have beaten all of those guys. Whether he would have in all of that, you know, certainly capable. Um, I don't know. I don't see one guy on here where I'm like, oh, Izzy can't beat them. Vitor Belfour, maybe? But that Vitor that was there on 2011, like, I think Izzy smokes him. You know, Stefan Bonner. I, there's the two Chael fights. The Demi and Maya fight's interesting, but Demi and Maya's... Modern Demi and Maya is an interesting one, right? Where he could slide underneath and then... Uh, like He shoots, then you sprawl, then he baseball slides underneath. That would have been... Anyone that's like a super hardcore grappler would have been an interesting one. But like, you know, would I ultimately pick them to beat Izzy? I don't know. I don't think so. Thoughts on Max being the backup for Zombie Volk. Is it worth it for fighters to prepare and cut weight for just in case this scenario... Uh, I don't know Max's particulars. I did find it strange that Volkanovski was like, oh, he must not have been injured. It's like, dude, Max Max has to be held back against, uh, Max has to be held back to protect himself, like against his own actions. He has to be held back to protect himself from himself. Like, that's the guy that's malingering? I don't find that to be a very compelling argument, personally. I, one never knows, certainly, but um, I don't buy that. Uh, I love it if that's what ends up happening, uh, in the sense of like, you know, as a backup, backup fights don't get much better than that. And that's that's pretty huge. Um, I don't have significant thoughts otherwise, other than I saw, and I get, I get it, I get it. It's, it's better for fighters, especially elite ones, to imagine. I have seen that fighters routinely put themselves in a position where they, uh, it is easy to put your opponent in a position where you can distrust them as a way to look past what you have to do to them, whether consciously or otherwise. And also that you know you have to say disparaging things about your very talented opponent as a way to hype yourself up. A lot of them have a me against the world kind of attitude. You're either with me or you're against me. Very, very George Bush, circa 2001. Uh, and I understand that from a competitive mindset. Uh, there's, there must be just. I, I see it so often, and with fighters as good as Volkanovski, you know, they don't come much better. Basically, if he's putting himself in that mindset, and others are also doing it, then there must be some kind of competitive benefit conferred from doing that. Nevertheless, like just asking me, you know, do I think Max is malingering to like cut corners? No, no, I don't. No, I don't think that at all. How much do you think Oliveira's poor eyesight affects his fighting? I would think good eyesight would be a pretty necessary component, but then again, Bisping also fought with basically no eyesight 
in one eye. I don't know. I mean, I'm only now grappling with, I have astigmatism. I, first of all, I don't know shit about eye ailments because until a year or two ago, I, I didn't even think I had any. In my 20s and early 30s, to the extent I ever had my eye tests or my eye, uh, my vision ever evaluated, I've always passed with flying colors. I've never had an issue until recently, and then obviously, you know, I'm old. So they told me I had a, I have astigmatism, which I guess means I'm just telling you what the fucking guy told me, which meant that like I don't have near uh, or far far sightedness in particular. I just sort of have a general um, blurriness with with uh, almost any kind of vision, but. The point I'm trying to make is partly it would just depend on like what exactly he's doing. The other one is I actually heard, and again, this was not my experience. Understand something. When you are aiming your, and please don't take this as any kind of advice or instruction. This is merely articulating what happens on the range. But when you fire on the range with, in this particular case, the M16A2, uh, where they tell you to put the, the center of the front sight post is center of mass. They don't tell you to put it like specifically in one kind of place. It'll be it, the 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 center almost gets a little blurry, and then just put the front side post there. I mean, assuming you could see the front side post, I guess if it was so far away that you couldn't even see center of mass, then that would be a problem. But I'm just sort of pointing out blurriness by itself in context in certain ranges, punching range, shooting range, whatever it may be, is not prohibitively bad every time. This is me basically just saying, clearly, however bad it is, it's not that bad, <laughs> right? I mean, it ain't that bad. Fucking guy is champion, and he's looking unbelievable, which isn't to say it wouldn't be better with, with clear eyesight. I'm, I'm sure in certain ways it would, but like, what would you argue has that it's hampered him? Clearly, he has found a way to find the metaphoric, cent blurry center of mass. Thoughts on Dana White doing very little media since the Francis fight. He usually does a ton of media in the build-up to a pay-per-view card. He's barely been seen since UFC 270. Um, listen, you know, I don't even know if Dana White could argue that he's not petty. <laughs> I mean... You know, I think even he would argue that there's a certain amount of... Listen, I've let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Have I ever been petty? Sure have. Sure have. I actually uh, toured an office today, um, an office space that was in my old office building where the where Vox Media still is. And I was sort of had to reconcile, like, how much do I want to rent a space in that building if I have to run into some of the people who, you know, whose existence I can barely tolerate. Uh, you know, and like what I might say, I ran through my mind a little bit, but that's petty. So you can't really do that. And, um, you, Dana could never be accused of not being petty. Nevertheless, I don't have the kind of information that would require me to have for me to, to declare to you that there's some kind of grand conspiracy theorist. Here's my best guess. My best guess is he's furious about Nganu winning. He's furious about Nganu potentially leaving. He's furious about Nganu being angry about fighter pay. I do think that probably even played a role with Adesanya to a degree. I really do believe that. Which isn't to say Adesanya didn't earn it, but you sign contracts in the larger business climate that exists, and certainly those guys are getting fucking hammered by bad press about fighter pay all the time. All the time they're getting hammered by it. Frankly, I'm tired of talking about it, but it is a reality. It's everywhere. 
And so there might be some kind of reaction to that as well. And by the way, good for Izzy. Get paid however you can get paid. Like, that's the name of the game. Um, so I'm sure he's angry about all of that. But whether or not, like, a reduced media schedule and everything else is exactly a function of that, I don't really worry about it, to be honest with you. I, I, would, I would strongly caution you to not do that as well. It's not that I'd say that's an irrelevant concern, but what let's say let's say it was true right now what now what's happened okay let's say dana white that doesn't done media let's let's just pause it for the sake of argument he has not done media has not done any of this stuff because like he's really mad at francis now where are we like <laughs> it doesn't it's not like it's some kind of indictment that means anything for at least within the industry dana is too well liked too powerful too entrenched for even that revelation to mean anything other than it might reshape how you view him depending on your perspective, but it doesn't mean shit. How would you compare Habib's entire run versus John Jones's run through the Chael Sonnen fight? What are your thoughts and memories of how you felt at the time when witnessing both play out? Habib, um, I wasn't slow to John. I, I, remember, I remember this specifically. John and I used to have a great relationship uh, when John came to D.C. one time, I was the only guy who got an interview with him. I had him inside that Vox Media office on the whatever floor it was um, for an interview, a long one, like an hour long. And and um, you know, he used to give me preference on interviews and all kinds of stuff. So I was never late. My first interview with him, I'll never forget, he was still with Team Bomb Squad up in New York, New York State. And to get in extra wrestling practice was training with Kyle Dake at the Cornell University uh, wrestling team. And if you don't know anything about Cornell wrestling, it's an Ivy League school, but their wrestling is fucking legit. Like, it's on par with big public programs and, and other ones as well. Like, they're awesome. Um, at least, you know, certainly in, in Kyle Dake's time, they were, they had, and Gabe Dean, I think, came after him. They've, they've had hammers there for a while. And I remember bringing it up to him, asking him, like, what was it training like at Cornell? He was one of my first guests ahead of UFC 100 on my 106.7 The Fan on my show, MMA Nation at the time. So I was always kind of hip to him. Uh, well, not – I didn't know who he was before the Goose Mal fight, but then I thought Goose Mal was going to wipe the floor with just some dude named John Jones because Goose Mal was a killer in the IFL. And then John beat him, and I was like, huh? And then I saw the Stefan Bonner fight, and I was like, oh. Oh, oh okay, so this is this dude, like, looked good. And, uh, you know, it went from there. So when he was going through the ranks, it was so unbelievably exciting because I remember after the Matt Yushchenko fight, like I had a high respect for Matt Yushchenko and fucking John, he wasn't just beating him. He was making them look pathetic. You know, like they were, like this was a fight that the commission fucked up and shouldn't have even made. Like when... You know, Brandon Vera was not on a, on a high note necessarily when he fought John Jones, but like I still had a high level of respect for Brandon Vera. I was I interviewed Brandon Vera at in Camp Springs before the Tim Sylvia fight. I remember this specifically, and uh, I had a high I had a high degree of respect for, and I still do for Brandon Vera's abilities. And you know, he just walked through him, broke his face like it was nothing, took him down like it was nothing. You know, I just you couldn't believe it. Like everybody he went up against, they just couldn't they couldn't stop him. They couldn't do if he wanted to get him down, they just went down. And like usually with authority on top of it. But along the way, he had to beat a lot of legends. Some of the fights went a little bit long. You know, uh he would get hit at times. Like obviously the Gustafson fight was not his best work. 
The first one, anyway. Obviously, the second one was a beatdown. And so, you know, there was certain degrees of vulnerability that was showing. And then, you know, obviously, he um, had the falling out with Rashad, and uh, he moved to, to New Mexico. And you know, he went on this incredibly dominant run in terms of wins and losses um, and, you know, beating a lot of good names. But, you know, Machida was able to, to like, do things to him a little bit in that first round. And um, obviously, the Gustafson fight and some other ones you could point out. I bring this all up to say when I watched Habib, okay, T-Bell fight would be similar. But outside of the T-Bell fight, they couldn't do shit to him. Again, I can't name another UFC champion who was ever not dropped or rocked or cut. Uh, and obviously he never got, I don't think he got taken down. Or maybe he got taken down once. I don't know, whatever it is. But it's just an extraordinary level of distance between you and me, right? They're different kinds of dominance. John's the most dominant and probably the best fighter I've ever seen in terms of just like what he offers as a challenge to people. And I say this, you know, I find him, I don't have a good word to say about him at this point. I, 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 don't even like the fact that he's still in the sport, but just recognizing what he has done, he's probably the best one I've ever seen. But in the run that Habib had, that's about as close to untouchable as you're going to get. There's no such thing as untouchable in MMA because everyone faces, you know, you're fighting another pro and a good one at that. And 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 you know, it, it, certainly John has, his resume is unimpeachable uh, in terms of who he beat. Obviously, there's larger questions if you care about anti-doping, but... That would be the difference. What what Habib for me did in the run that he did it in, that run of dominance through the entirety of his MMA career in the UFC without really ever facing genuine adversity is just fucking insane. It's completely insane. John's great because at times in his career, he got all the wins that he needed. But the way I would answer the question about John's greatness is when he could be, he was just an unstoppable force and when he needed to be he could uh you know work and play the levels dig out of bad spots rally in tough fights you know even if you don't agree that he beat Gustafson the first time he he ended that fight way stronger than he started it same with the Dominic Reyes fight now I thought that John won the Gustafson fight I scored the Reyes fight for Reyes. But even then, dude, look at how he finished that fight. So, like, John's got a lot – he's got a lot of smarts, too. You know, I think he was – it was not a great fight for him, but avoiding some of the dangers of Tiago Santos and whatnot. Like, dude, he's clever. He's fucking cl- – as, as a fighter, he's clever, man. you got to give it to him. He's clever. He's very, very smart. He makes good choices about what he's doing in there and when to press the gas and when to press the brake. You know, because he did things longer than Habib did them – I think he's naturally going to take on more adversity. Someone would have eventually put it on Habib if he had stuck around long enough. Um, but that window that he put together, that that resume as a block, it's a fucking impressive resume from Habib. Just un, uh, almost, almost untouchable. Um, but I don't think he's better than John. All right, let's see what kind of extra questions you got, and then we'll go from there. All right, I don't think a ton. Let's see. I may have turned it off. I'm not even sure. Hold on. Let me check this out. If there's not a ton, that's okay. You guys don't owe me anything. Um, let's see. I apologize for pulling this up. Oops. Here we go. Oh, there's a few. Okay. 
Is it that you don't believe in anti-doping in sport at all, or just that anti-doping presently does far more to infringe on the dignity and privacy of athletes than it does to weed out drug users? I certainly have questions about whether or not it's actually doing the job that it purports to do, although some anti-doping obviously has some kind of suppressive effect on, on use. Uh, but the question is, does it carry other harms? That's really not my biggest... Um, at this point, I would not say that's my biggest gripe. My biggest gripe is that we're just having a very dishonest conversation about this. The idea to me from an evidentiary case that drug use makes sport worse I, at the elite level, I, I just have a very hard time accepting this. The argument that it's really about health and safety is just a fucking joke to me. I mean, it's just so obviously not true. For Again, for elite level athletes, for intramural and other things like that, then yeah, like... I think doping in those scenarios, especially by younger people, this just seems wildly inadvisable. Um, but for adults at the highest level, people who who, who earn a prize based off of this, um, you know, that if they want to use and the rules allow them to do that, which I grant, you know, are few and far between, but in cases where this exists, I don't. I frankly don't understand what the problem is. Oh, what about health? Well, okay, there should be some health screens in place. You don't want to exacerbate problems that you could avoid but the arguments for why we have to go on this like dude like there are plenty of ways in which the medical establishment and larger society regulates drug use uh, for example you have to get a prescription for certain things um if you buy aspirin they don't just give you a chunk of aspirin they give it to you in 200 milligram micro doses so that you can take the appropriate dose and they tell you what it is you can od on if, if you want but the idea is that they make the process as smooth and as straightforward, but there are some are harms that are usually kind of sorted. It's not the idea that there shouldn't be no regu no regulation. Like why are why are healthy twenty one year old guys using steroids? Again, if there's a reason for that, um, yes, you could imagine some. But in general, these are things you would generally wish to deter, uh, if at all possible. Um, but for that narrow subset of people who I know my competitors using, I don't really, doesn't bother me to use. In fact, I might even prefer it. Um, it, it makes the sports better. I, I'm a fan. I'm not understanding what I'm supposed to be alarmed about here. Oh, it ruins the game. How? <laughs> like, in every way it makes it, you're, you're literally telling me it makes your performances better and I'm supposed to argue, believe that I'm, this is now a worse product? It's just insane. It's a, it's a completely fraudulent conversation. There are plenty of reasons where you would want to keep uh, dangerous chemicals, which could be, listen, it could be dangerous chemicals from people who don't need them or otherwise have no real use for them. Fine, fine. But for the folks that I'm talking about, you, I don't get what the argument is. This makes sports worse. Motherfucker, it makes sports great. Drugs, say it out loud, drugs make sport more interesting. And it makes it more fun to watch. Say it out loud. I have enjoyed baseball in any number of conditions. When I was in Little League, uh, going to the game, even if everyone's clean, yes, I've enjoyed plenty of them clean who are not using. That's been fine. But are you really going to tell me that I've had a bad time watching known steroid users in baseball? Or that it brought down attendance? Or that... It somehow maligned the game absent moral panic in the media? Like, how? What, what was the evidence for it? They just repeat this shit generation after generation and expect, expect that, like, Cruff the, uh, the, uh, McGruff the crime dog is going to come out here and, you know, take a bite out of fucking doping for you and really, 
convince you. It's just it's just Nancy Reagan drug war bullshit. I don't buy any of it. The high court, excuse me. Um, in light of their recent performances, what do you think of a rematch between Cruz and Garbrandt would look like today? I, I wonder if Garbrandt might have problems. I think Garbrandt got a lot out of his mentorship from Justin Buckles. Justin Buckles is a great coach and um, very clever, smart, capable mind. And I don't mean to say that Cody did nothing, of course, to produce his win. I think he did a lot. But I think it would also be unfair to deny the power of that relationship and how I think um, powerful it was for him, uh, at least in that fight on that night. It was extremely important for him. Uh, I know nothing about boxing. Don't they have rules preventing an O&O Nganu from fighting the champ? Yes, but no. Yes. Athletic commissions were introduced and created by various state assemblies, wherever they may be. New York was one of the early ones. New Jersey, you could imagine, was another early one. Um, well, what they were trying to do was solve a problem. Boxing at the time was not regulated, and it was overrun by grifters. And what you would often see is guys throw up a tent, Fighters fight, and then the promoter's gone before he has to pay the check. Or not, he would pay, and there would be a huge mismatch. He'd have a hometown guy he'd put against some stiff. He'd tell the audience the stiff is great, and then this guy gets fucking pummeled, and uh, there's that. Or, you know, there's all kind. there was the mafia and, 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 and organized crime had begun to get involved. So what they wanted to do was just kind of weed as much of that out and just make it... They didn't want to overly regulate it, but they wanted to bring some, frankly, civility to it. So they began to, over time, introduce weight classes. They made sure the promoter, had, one of the things they had to do early was put a portion of the purse up front so that after the event there was no question about whether the fighters were going to get paid. And it went on and on and on. One of the other things they did was that commissions made a rule they have to approve all fights that take place sanctioned in that state. Now, if you go to Native American territory, they have no authority. But if you want to put a fight on in the state of Nevada, the Nevada State Athletic Commission has to give you a promoter's license, and then you have to submit your bout sheet to them, and they have to take a look at it and look at the matchups and approve it. Now, for the most part, this is a rubber stamp thing. I don't want you to be confused that we can trust athletic commissions everywhere um, as, you know, uh, people of sound mind and judgment who we can really rely upon to um, make the best calls. It often fails. However, you'll note that they recently in Florida, who did they not approve? Was it Bigfoot? I think they didn't approve. You know, they will stop on occasion. They allowed Mayweather versus McGregor under the argument that I think the round was, the maybe it was 12 rounds. I don't even remember anymore. But the, the basic argument that Nevada used was that, right, he might be 0-0 in boxing, but this is an experienced combat athlete. We think that there is reason to believe that, you know, whether he wins or loses is up to him, but that this is not some kind of dire situation for said fighter. Ordinarily, there would be on paper someone at that commission to be like, wow, just some rando off the street who's O and O, like, oh, not rando, but like, you know, LeBron James is also O and O, and they wouldn't approve that, you would imagine, although they might under exhibition rules, but under pro rules, they wouldn't do that. A, they probably wouldn't grant him a pro fighter's license. And B, what they would say is, even if they granted him a license, we're not going to approve this because not only are you O and O like Francis Ngannou, you have zero competitive experience as it relates to combat sports. None. We cannot, in good conscience, approve this. You do see that time to time. But, you know, could they find, like, you know, did they, could they, I, one of the reasons why I thought Mayweather McGregor would never happen is because I was sure that uh, the, the commission is going to look at this and be like, fuck no. And then they approved it. I was like, well, hoisted by my own petard. 
Any interest at all in a potential matchup between Canelo and Triple G on the DAZN deal? Seems kind of late in the game for Triple G for another competitive fight. I mean, I thought that Triple G won the first one. I didn't think he won the second one. And I think he gets washed in the third one. Listen, obviously, I work for Showtime. It would be nice for my career if uh, Canelo fought Charlo on Showtime and we got to go and cover it. I don't know if that will happen. Uh, I do love the fight between Canelo and Bivol. I think that's a great fight. The one with Triple G doesn't do much for me um, at this stage. Obviously, the first two were extremely important, but at this stage, I think Canelo is just too good. But if you're Eddie Hearn and you're DAZN, that's a very competitive offer financially and, and whatever else in terms of weights that you could offer. Um, Charlo's competitive as well in terms of the money he could get from that. But um, So I'm, I'm half-half. Love I, I respect Eddie Hearn a lot. I love what he does. Um the Bivol fight, great. But another Triple G fight, I mean, I'm not saying I won't watch. I will obviously watch, but it's not for me. After Poirier, how do you see Charles versus Habib? Is it close? Does Charles win? The thing is, is that Dustin, you know, as talented as he is, and he's extraordinarily talented, you know, it's pretty clear. I think even he, I don't know what he would tell you, but I feel like what he might tell you is... um. That has been a challenging area for him. It wasn't like he lost to scrubs there. Like Habib and Charles are fucking awesome. But it has been uh, a bit of a, uh, you know, one of the weaker areas of his game. And which is why um, high-level operators, not anybody else, but high-level operators have had some success with him recently. So... How, what, what, what does that mean for Charles versus Habib? It's like, is Habib going to ever find himself in those situations? I don't, I don't know how to explain this to you guys, but this is the best way I can think of it. I watched Habib's, one of his uh, seminars, and there's like a whole section he has on the importance of being able to take mount, but then use your knees and then the muscles inside of your legs around the other, your opponent's legs to hold and grip and balance and control them. But he doesn't really give a lot of pointers except to say like he is unequivocal about it. He's like, I cannot overstate how important it is that you develop this skill. You must develop the skill. He says it over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, put this like that. Um, it's as if he came back from the future and just kind of knew what worked and almost had a breezy attitude about it. Like, I know what works and I know what doesn't because I've seen this. You know, it's, it's hard to explain. It's this real clear confidence about what works in a fight and what doesn't and what has to happen for these things to be genuine and real. And I just feel like with, with the kind of understanding of position he has, um, you never know because Charles is dangerous and deadly, but I just don't feel like Khabib would find himself in similar circumstances. Do you have any list or guidelines you are attempting to implement in parenting? Obviously, keep it as vague as you like, but just curious what you think matters most in raising a child. Dude, you got to have a happy and healthy child. That's what matters the most. All that other shit is quite secondary from what I can tell because happiness in this life is hard to come by and you got to secure it with a young person. They need they need nurturing. Um, the only like, rule that we have is that to make sure that Spanish is a part of my daughter's life, if my wife asks her a question in Spanish, she has to respond in Spanish. She cannot respond in English. We don't tolerate that. Um, 
and it has worked. It has been majorly beneficial. Obviously, even at two and a half, this is not the... It's going to take a long time for her to learn Spanish at the level that her mother speaks it. But, you know, understand something. I don't consider this some kind of flashy thing to put on a resume. She has an entire family in another continent that I think many of them speak English. But without direct access to their language, her relationship with them will be affected. So to me, it is not merely a function of... um, you know, your mom spoke it, it's probably worth speaking, it can be valuable at job interviews and blah, blah, blah. All that is true. More importantly is that so she does not lose access to that entire side of the family. That language is a pipeline into the culture. That's the hardest lesson I've had to learn about my shitty Spanish. I, I, the, mo- the better I get at it, the more I feel like I'm involved in the, the lives and the culture down there. And you're just always at this like weird distance when you can't when you can't access it. I don't think all knockdowns are created equal. Example: Moreno knocked down, got knocked down by Figgy. He popped back up. I still think he won the round. Judges seem to disagree and treat it like boxing. Yes or no? The question you're asking is: Was it a flash knockdown versus more? The problem is, dude. Like, especially in a fight that's close and scrambly. The one thing that just stands out, like judges will work based on what they remember. That's just the way it goes, what they remember. These are old motherfuckers. So like seeing someone get clipped and then dropped, it's powerful. I grant, you're right, there should be some kind of uh, awareness about what actually happened, but you you get the judges you have. I sound like Donald Rumsfeld. You get the judges you have, not the ones you would wish you would have. (laughs) But this is also why I think it's important for younger people if they're interested. When I say younger, I mean 30s, even in 40s. Um, that's not young per se, but by judging standards, it's very young. It's important to be involved in these kinds of things if you want to be. I, I bring it up all the time. I sound like a broken record. I'll just say it one more time. There's been a study done. I talked about it on my radio show extensively about um, the strength and the abilities of umpires in Major League Baseball. And what they found was the ones who were in there from the 5 to 10 or so year mark had the best amount of work. The ones who had been there 20 plus years did the worst at their job. Did the worst. So you're asking like, hey, wouldn't it make more sense for judges to not do that? It might, but they're old. And there's going to be all kinds of reasons why they're not going to do that in the way that you are correctly assuming that they otherwise should. Luke, did you get the art of combat drawing from Scott Herbert? Yes. Uh, would you favor labeling three-fourths of the UFC roster developmental? Think G League or AAA baseball in exchange for the remaining fighters getting paid NBA-level cash? Sort of. I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Like, like the f- top 15 can only fight the other top 15? I don't know how that would be workable. Uh, you need some of these other developmental pieces of the game to work because, like... I just did a whole thing on Shavkat Rachmanov. He wasn't the biggest name before. Now he's in the top 15. So, like, do I think he's G League? Not exactly. I understand what you're trying to do to to have firmer limits. Um, And you're right. There probably is a lot of extraneous uh, roster talent in the UFC, but I wouldn't quite do it that way. Could you please cite a handful of resources on PEDs and sports? I've been over this only a million times. Uh, let's see. I had a whole post about this on uh, Instagram. Uh, 
on Instagram, straight flexing. Like Trinidad James. Hang on. It was actually right after the Rogan show. People were asking me, hey, do you have any um, things you can send me? Yes, I do. Hang on. It is... Yeah, here we go. This is the number one one. Hope I don't get texted. The anti-doping crisis in sport from uh, Leopoldo Mio and Werner Muller is one. You can't quite see it fully. It's called, I forget who wrote it, but it's called Spitting in the Soup. This will tell you what a fucking sham um, the Olympics are. Uh, Werner Muller has a uh, compilation work, The Ethics of Doping and Anti-Doping. Uh, from John Gleaves and Thomas M. Hunt, A Global uh, History of Doping and Sport. Um, from Vanessa McDermott, The War on Drugs and Sport. She does this from a moral panic observation standpoint. And then um, I think Thomas M. Hunt may have written this one as well, but The Rise and Fall of Olympic Amateurism, which is critical to how the anti-doping movement got started. Yeah, you can, you can, you can open those. Do you think Stipe could realistically beat Jones? Yes. Yes, I do think he realistically could beat Jones. We don't know how the strength is going to match up. I've talked to Brendan Schaub, who trained at Jackson's very briefly with John. He said John was just beating the fuck out of everybody. Yeah, maybe so. Um, but I don't. I think it would be quite foolish to assume that a guy who can wrestle and box and can ordinarily make pretty good decisions, especially in you know with a second or third try especially. Um, yeah, I think he could. Dude, with John at heavyweight, I don't even know what to say. It's just so many unknowns. Who he's going to fight, when he's going to fight, did he get to 270? Stan Efferdine is one of the guys who's helping him. Stan Efferdine is a fucking animal. I have nothing bad to say about Stan Efferdine. I love him. I think he's great. Um, but I don't know what's happening. We don't, we don't know shit. We don't know shit. So without just more information, I just don't know what to say. And you know, you're like you're talking about well, everything he did at light heavyweight. Dude, that fight against Reyes was two years ago. And he had a long break before that. Well, sort of. He had a shorter run. But, you know, the breaks he's had in his career. I mean, how many years has he given up? Like, it's just insane. So trying to make an accurate assessment about what he does and who he is. I don't know, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, all right. That is it for me, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you watching today. Um, thumbs up on the video. Hit like. Uh, hit subscribe, rather. Uh, there only might be a couple more of these in this room. There only might be two, three more of these in this room, and then we're out of here. So, end of an era. Uh, but we need to recharge this whole fucking podcast in a new and different way. So, maybe it's high time, yeah? All right, numbers kind of tell you the whole story anyway. <laughs> All right, thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. Thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time, until next time, excuse me, stay frosty.